Off-Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. Deer Crossing Camp is a summer camp in the California High Sierras that's totally off-grid. You either have to walk in or boat in to get there. And I went there for a number of summers as a kid, and I went back to work there as a young adult. This has been probably the most formative experience of my life, and I've wanted to get Jim Wiltons, the founder and director of this camp, on the podcast for a long time. So I finally showed up at his house and recorded an interview with him in his office. But this isn't just a stroll down memory lane for me. Deer Crossing Camp appears to be a traditional camp on the outside, but it is anything but. It is a very unique place that builds confidence and attitude and the skills that underlie self-directed learning in young people in a way that I have not seen elsewhere. To learn more about Deer Crossing, go to DeerCrossingCamp.com. To support this show and my other efforts of promoting self-directed learning around the world, go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Blake Bowles. And for everything else, there is BlakeBowles.com. And now without further ado, I bring you Jim. I'm here with Jim Wiltons, the man, the myth, the legend. Welcome, Jim. Probably more the myth I would think is going to happen here, but go for it. Jim, you've been a big part of my life. I went to your camp, Deer Crossing Camp, when I was 11. I went there for four summers. I came back and worked for you in college as an instructor, and then after college as your assistant director. One summer, I was your cook, and then you went off to Mongolia for the last two weeks of camp, and I was the deputy director of the camp. And then we've been involved in many ways outside of camp. We've gone on adventures together. Uh, We went to Guatemala to go tree climbing for a week. And uh, yeah, you've been a major force in my life. So I'm really glad to have you here and to ask you lots of questions, especially uncomfortable ones. Well, Blake, it's always fun to see the kids that have grown up at our camp and had a lot of experience with them as adults now and see, you know, how they've grown and maybe use some of the things they've learned at camp to develop themselves. So I'm looking forward to these uncomfortable questions. Mm -hmm. Jim, how old are you? Uh, I'm old enough to know. and (laughs) People always say, Jim, you're too young to do what you've done or you're too old to do what you've done. So now I just tell people I'm old enough to accomplish whatever it is that I need to do. (laughs) Great. And what title do you give yourself? If you are at a cocktail party introducing yourself with one line, what's the elevator pitch? Two lines. Human profiler. I, I think that's one line. Two words, one line. Uh, human profiler, that sounds like some CSI, very mysterious, forensic type of job, but you're, you're not really doing that. You're, what do you really do? Well, the idea is to find out what makes people the best at what they do. So in the things you see on television, they're looking into the bad guy's brain, trying to figure out how do they think differently. And in my case, I try to find people that are exceptional at what they do and then trying to understand what makes them different than other people. And so I've had a chance to be around tons of Olympic athletes. Uh, I've worked with three Olympic coaches. I've been with Nobel laureates, uh, CEOs of major corporations, uh, super teachers, super parents, super teachers, and find out what makes them different than other people. And then try to either build that into myself or to share it with others. So you've hung out with a lot of high performers. You also read a lot of books, and that's something you've inspired me to do, especially in the realm of psychology. You're just constantly reading and taking the research and especially the tools that you find, stuff that you can act upon, and integrating that into your programs. And I think this is what really differentiates you from other people who are public intellectuals who do a lot of reading and research. You apply this. And so 
tell me about the kind of stuff that you do to bring this to people's lives in a very hands-on way. Well, right now, Blake is sitting in my office, and if he just looks a little bit to his uh, side here, he'll notice that there's there's tons of books in the areas of psychology and so on. I used to be a research scientist myself, and so the idea of, of going through the research to find out what brings out the very best in people in psychology is something that I've just been fascinated by. Uh, when I was a professional coach and was working with uh, university and national level teams, the idea was, how do you bring out the best in people? And then I found out that a lot of the research, when you try to put it into play, doesn't work. And so Deer Crossing, many, many years ago, the summer camp that I own, became a research crucible where we would uh, use certain techniques to see if they could bring out the best in people. When things would work, we would utilize it. And when they wouldn't work, we'd put it to the side and figure it out. Either we weren't getting it to work properly because we didn't understand it, or it was just one of those things that works better in the laboratory than it does in real life. And so I've been pretty much trying to find practical ways to use technical research in the areas of bringing out the best in life. You got that line polished. Um, you're also known as a sort of Indiana Jones sort of character because uh, you work with a lot of school groups, like fifth grade groups here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And when you come in, you are not just bringing uh, fun toys and games and magic tricks, but you are bringing real life stories of adventures that you've been on. You walk the walk. And I think this is why kids really respect you. And so can you recap a little bit of these wacky personal adventures that you've been on? Well, I did uh, two programs this morning with uh, fourth graders, and so I started the program out, and again, I used that Indiana Jones style of adventure that I've been on to use as my hook to hook the kids, and then to bring them into the conceptual ideas and then actually have them do things. So this morning, I was explaining to them uh, the importance of being a leader is having courage and being willing to step outside your comfortable envelope. And so I told them about an adventure where I was in India, and to show my courage, I've always wanted to learn how to charm a cobra. And so what happened was, in India, I found out that most of the cobra charmers are fakes. They get pliers, rip the fangs out, and so they're working with a totally harmless cobra. But I did do some more research and found out there's people that work with fully loaded live cobras. And so they're members of the Nath religion. And in the Nath religion, they worship the cobra, so they never hurt one. So I got in contact with one of these gentlemen. Like I say, I, I want to, we have a big saying in my facility, there's a big difference between knowing and doing. And so I wanted to learn how to charm a cobra. And before I could begin, we went out to a member of an Ath religion's home and I had to show my courage. And I said, what do I need to do? And he then reached and pulled a basket between us. He then very carefully opened the lid and he pulled out a six-foot-long live black cobra. He then took a twig off the floor of the hut. He pried its mouth open, and he hinged the fangs out so I could see this was a fully loaded cobra. He then said, Sir, for me, would you, would you please uh, open your shirt? And so I pulled my shirt open, and he slipped the cobra down inside my shirt where it proceeded to coil itself around my body. Now, I tell the kids in my class that uh, you need to know some things about cobras. Uh, cobra can detect fear, and when they detect fear, they get very agitated, and they're more likely to bite. And so when you do this, you have to be incredibly calm. And I explain to the kids, this type of calmness doesn't come all of a sudden. It happens in little, tiny, tiny pieces, which you add up over a long time, until you can do the amazing things. 
And so for the kids, I tell them in my class, first thing you're going to show me is whenever I ask for a volunteer, everybody try to beat everybody else. Get your hand up first, even though you don't know what's going to happen. Though I promise them I'm not going to put a cobra down their shirts. But it's the beginning of starting to get them to show their courage by doing something small that begins the, the process of becoming a leader. When I went to Deer Crossing Camp for the first time, just like all the other new campers, I was greeted by the story of the Tanaki monster on the trail. And I'm just going to spill the beans here. Tanaki is the phrase, I can't. Oh! I just said it, I know. I can't spell backwards. T-apostrophe N-A-C-I. And before we ever got to camp, we were told that there are three things that we're supposed to say instead of... I can't. I'm sorry to get, do it to you a third time, Jim. You're killing me, Blake. I know. So instead of saying that phrase, at Deer Crossing Camp, we were instructed to either say Tanaki, or to say I choose not to, or the best one is I could if I. And this is a story that I've related in some of my books, and it always opens people's eyes, and it makes them laugh, and it makes them scratch their heads. They love it. It's, it's a highly accessible story. And when I was working at camp, and I had to tell the Tanaki story to new campers coming in. It always hooked them. And this is something that you are extremely good at, is taking kind of abstract principles about having a positive attitude or positive psychology and turning it into something that everyone, but especially young people, can hold onto and they can visualize and they can put into practice. So where did you start developing this habit of, maybe we would call it gamifying psychology? Well, one of the problems with conceptual ideas, explaining it especially, well, even from a young person, I mean, I teach, I've taught at Google, I've taught at Stanford, and one of the difficulties is getting the idea to be sticky and extremely easy to understand and work with right away. And so uh, what we're talking about here is taking an idea in what we call neurolinguistic programming. Words control what we do. Uh, sometimes teenagers, I like to argue, oh, no, Jim, that's not true. That's not really true. Words aren't that powerful. And so I do a really, really easy test with them. Uh, it's called the Stroop test. And many people have probably heard of it where you show them uh, colors, but they're written in a word different than the color. So if the word is written as green, the word itself might be blue. And so what I do is I have all these on a page and I point at them very quickly like a kangaroo hopping from word to word and asked a teenager to tell me what the color is. What they find is they often glitch it. They'll say the word that they see rather than the color because the word is so powerful. And it's overriding the ability to do something that they could do when they were a little tiny kid. And so it's the beginning of showing how strong a word is in throwing you off on your color sense. And the phrase that you just used, Tanaki... (laughs) And uh, Blake knows that he's trying to lure me in here to say it the other way around because I have a standing offer. If somebody hears me say it the other way around, I give them $100. And I've witnessed this happen at Deer Crossing. And Jim, you said it's happened maybe seven times total? In 20 years now, I've had it happen eight times. Eight times. $800. $800 down the hole for saying Tanaki backwards. It's not down the hole. It's a payment to help train me. So everybody is my trainer. They're keeping me from using what we call disempowering language. And so every time you say Tanaki the other way around, uh, the kids always ask me, I have a gigantic puppet called the Tanaki monster, which I use to anthropomorphize or give you know a visual, an emotional, 
and a verbal feeling to a psychological idea. And so the kids see the puppet and often afterwards that many of them come up and I had a few today that said, Jim, is the Tanaki monster real? Uh, in my more advanced classes, I explain, yes, it is real. In neurolinguistics, uh, the neuronal patterns that you're using when you're in a certain situation, like so, say you're in a situation where something's very difficult. Someone says Tanaki the other way around automatically without even thinking. And it's a way of giving up without processing what's going on. And so what I'm doing is, is getting rid of that phrase and replacing it with the phrase that gives you power. And as you mentioned, my favorite one is I could if I. Um, and I could if I is what in psychology we call an invitational stem. Once you say the phrase, it sets your brain up to do something else. And so it sets you up to look for a solution or be creative in the situation. And so I'm training leaders. And so obviously I need people that immediately look for solutions rather than looking for Tanaki monsters in a way to give up. And so in my life, especially as my Indiana Jones side of life, if I say Tanaki the other way around, there are situations I've been in, I would be dead two seconds later. And so the kids get stories later on about how using that phrase would make me hesitate in a situation where it could kill me if I don't come up with a solution. So I'm happy to pay $100 to keep him out of my life. And it's literally kept me alive a number of times. You just made me realize that you dodged the question earlier about what kind of adventures have you been on? Can you just give me a, a high level summary of some of your biggest adventures, please, for the benefit of our listeners? Well, um, a buddy and I, in fact, one of my past campers, Vince, who Blake knows very well, Vince also grew up at camp, started when he was nine years old, went through all of our training, became an instructor, and again, is a very close friend of mine. Uh, Vince and I bought four camels, and we rode across the Gobi Desert uh, for three months in search of the cousin of a T-Rex skeleton, which is called a Tabasaurus, and had all kinds of adventures doing it. We fell in with dinosaur bandits. And uh, it became a very, very exciting adventure. Um, Blake mentioned one of ours in Guatemala. Uh, we teach technical tree climbing at our uh, training facility. And so myself and Blake, uh, one of my other campers, Julie, who's now an adult, and Vince, went with me. And my goal was to sleep on top of a, a Mayan pyramid in a tree above a Mayan pyramid buried in the jungle. And so we, we did that and a lot of other things as well. Um, I purchased, uh, well, let me give you one I did recently. I was in the Forbidden Valley of Lo in Asia. It's taken me 13 years to set this up. Again, I went with two of my past campers, Doug, who I've known since he was a little kid, uh, and Simon, one of my instructors. And we went into the Forbidden Valley of Lo where hundreds of years, thousands of years ago, primitive people uh, scaled vertical cliffs using stone tools they chipped their way in, and they made multi-storied cities in these vertical walls. And we finally got permission to go in, and we did rappels of over 600 feet, swung into these caves that no one's been into in many centuries, and discovered all kinds of really cool stuff. Uh, my adventures are rather unique in that uh, I, I've been diving all over the world with great white sharks. Uh, I've paraglided in different places in the world, sailing off cliffs. Often kids try to get me to say Tanaki the other way around. They say, Jim, can you fly without an airplane? And I go, do it all the time. <laughs> and so those are just a few of the many adventures I've been on. And one of your early ones was marooning yourself on an island off the coast of British Columbia. Is that correct? Yes. Did you do this pretty soon after getting married? I did. Uh-huh. And my wife, Ellen, was 
Ellen didn't know me as well as she does now. Uh, she was a little nervous about that one. The idea was, is having read uh, books like Robinson Crusoe. Uh, the first one that got me started on this, though, was probably My Side of the Mountain. If a kid hasn't read this, I read this when I was 12 or 13. It's about a boy that runs away from home, lives up in the mountains, and survives for over a year and has one adventure after another. Uh, and, of course, Swiss Family Robinson, Robinson Crusoe, also got into this. So I had a captain up in British Columbia take me out in his boat, drop me off in an island about twice as big as an aircraft carrier. There's no fresh water on the island, obviously no people, very, very, very isolated, to see if I could stay alive uh, with just basically the things in my pockets. There was no food, no tent, no sleeping bag, no 911, nothing, just dropped me off and then left me there and would come back and pick me up if I was still alive later. How, I, how long were you on the island? I was on the island for a week, which was long enough to, to prove what I wanted, because this is not a friendly island. It gets rammed by incoming Pacific storms with cold, sleety, or snowy rain. Uh, it's just a very difficult island to survive upon. And Ellen was really so worried because we'd just been married. She flew up. She rented a car. She did the 60-mile logging road out to this little fishing village. She got the captain, who she was afraid wouldn't pick me up, uh, got in the boat with him, came out to see if I was still there. And lo and behold, she still had a husband. Weren't you sleeping in a tree at some point? Uh, I've been sleeping in a tree quite a bit now. Uh, like standing in, inside a tree. Is that a correct memory that I have? Yeah, and that one, I slept in a hollow tree because the boy in my side of the mountain slept in a hollow tree. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to copy what he had done. Jim, you're really just living out all of these childhood adventure fantasies, but you're you're not just doing one or two like many people might do. You're doing a whole lifetime of them. Does that sound accurate? Yes. I want to be able to say that when I'm sitting in a rocking chair and I'm going on to whatever the next big adventure is, that I've done it. I've had that experience and I've done this and that and it's been wonderful. And whatever comes next, I'm ready for it. Jim, let's bring it back to attitude. If you don't have a good attitude in one of these adventures, it could literally kill you. Why do you teach attitude to kids instead of adults? Well, I work with adults as well, but one of the reasons I love working with a younger audience is because your attitude is literally something that grows in your brain. You're strengthening neuronal pathways based upon the words that you use, uh, the physical things that you do with your body, and the beliefs that you have. And so the younger that I can start a child on developing what we call power attitudes that will give them more choices in their lives, uh, the more influence I can have. So I really like working with young people. On a conceptual level, I usually start at eight only if they're like, you know, gate programmed because they can understand the conceptual stuff. Gate means gifted and talented education here yes. in California. Thanks for clarifying that. So I originally started only working with gate students, but then parents began to complain because I work in seven school districts as a consultant in the Bay Area that well, my kid's not a Gates student, and I want them to have the same thing that my, the, you know, the Gates students are getting. And so now they've been funding me to work with all fourth and all fifth grade classes at entire schools in entire districts to do an early start on the development of the types of attitudes that give kids incredible power in their lives. Uh, I might mention, though, that one of the programs incredibly popular is my parent-child program, where you come with one parent, one child, and they go through the programming together. And so what I then get is called a rebound effect. Many of the parents tell me, Jim, I've learned as much as my kid did, if not even more. 
And then the rebound effect is the parent and the child now have shared a bonding experience within the program. They have a common dialogue that can use the words related to attitude. They have what I call trigger phrases where the parent or the child doesn't have to give a long lecture to get an idea across because they can just mention the trigger phrase and immediately brings everything back. So I really, really enjoy the child-parent programs, but I, I work with all levels, you know, trying to help leadership develop. And Deer Crossing is really your laboratory. It has been one for 30 years, more than that, 35 years. And you are doing things at Deer Crossing that people do not do at other summer camps. And I think that you are, you know, of a small group of a dying breed of these kind of, of these more hardcore wilderness summer camps. And so just paint us a picture here. What makes Deer Crossing a different wilderness summer camp from other you know, pretty outdoorsy summer camps that you might typically find in the U.S.? Well, as you said, it was originally a, a way to pre- uh, test out the techniques that we'd find at the stacks at Stanford or the stacks at Berkeley and the research that was being done on psychology, pull the stuff out of the, the books and find a way to make it real for the kids. And we would, we've actually structured everything based upon the psychology is woven into what we do. For instance, when the campers come in, as you mentioned, one of the first stories we tell on the trail is a story that makes the Tanaki uh, concept really stick in their brain. And then during camp, like if a child is, say, on a vertical rock wall getting ready to rappel, this is the first time they've ever looked down a 100-foot wall and they're going, oh, my God, and they want to say Tanaki the other way around, the instructor who's also versed in this can just say, no Tanaki's here. And so the child then overcomes it by having been what we call pre-framed. We set things up for them to be successful, and we've woven all these conceptual ideas in. And I, I think you might be the best person because... You know, one of the things we do to try to help get rid of fear, we teach a technique, we call, we call it bunny breathing. It actually has a much fancier name in psychology. And it's an actual thing where we know the campers are going to be afraid, but we've given them a way to deal with it. So I'll, tell you, I'll interview you now. Do you oh boy, remember, here we go. All right. Do you remember that night after campfire? This is one of my favorite stories to tell, and it's actually a chapter in my book, The Art of Self-Directed Learning. Are, are we allowed to talk about this on air, Jim? Yeah, don't give away too much. Okay. So, yeah, if you're a first-year camper going to a two-week session of Deer Crossing, something is happening the first Saturday night, and nobody will tell you exactly what it is. Maybe sometimes an older camper will tell you, but usually it's a big secret. And the instructors are acting a little bit weird. They're telling you to look behind you as you hike the quarter mile out to the campfire site. And you go out and there's, you know, normal campfire skits and s'mores. And then it's probably about 1030 at night. And there's probably not much of a moon in the Sierras. The Milky Way is splashed against the sky. And then you learn what must be done. I'm just going to say it, Jim. You have to walk back to camp a quarter mile by yourself in the dark. This is why I think you're part of a dying breed. I just think that there's very... I worked for some outdoor ed programs in Southern California that did night walks. I'm using air quotes here. And they were nothing compared to the Deer Crossing night walk. And it was highly facilitated. And of course, the Deer Crossing night walk is fundamentally safe, but it is scary. And so you were saying, this is where we teach them a skill about controlling fear. 
Well, one of the things is uh, the only way you develop courage is by facing what we call perceived or real a risk. And what happens is the kids often see the darkness, the night, they're away from home, they're going to have to walk back to camp by themselves. There's bears, there's cougars, there's demons, yeah. you name it, they're all behind the trees waiting and wait for them and everything. And so the perceived risk is extremely high, but the actual risk is extremely low because we set a bunch of stuff up, which I'm not going to go into because I don't want people to know about it, but we set up a ton of safety nets and safety patterns so we know the kids are really safe when they go back, but the perceived risk is extremely high. Prior to the walk back, uh, we teach them a number of techniques for working with fear, and one we call bunny breathing. Uh, in psychology, when you're amygdala, that part of your brain that takes over when you're freaking out and just makes you do the irrational, wild craze, run and scream kind of things, uh, is being powered by a circuit which is fueled by the chemical norepinephrine. And so what we do is we teach the kids a physical thing that they do, we call it bunny breathing, which restricts the release of the chemical. Now they hear it in a story and everything, they may not know about all the chemicals, the brain parts that are working, but they understand that if they do this, it can prevent them bec from becoming afraid and panicking and not thinking when they're in this situation. Uh, they go back and many of them will tell you they were really scared when they went back, but when they get back to camp and we get them all together again, there's still a little bit of energy and everything, but the next morning, the courage level has gone up dramatically. I can verify this. I've seen it so many times over and over again. It's a whole different camp. It's a different group of kids on Sunday morning. Well, they faced a fear that was perceived to be extremely high, and they made it. They showed that they had courage. The thing we always show about the heroes on television, you know, they face a danger and they deal with it. They have faced an honest-to-God real danger here to their minds. And they overcame it, and that's the important thing. And the funny thing here is the real danger is when we send them back home. When they're sitting in an automobile with their parents and the windows are rolled up, the music is playing, and those two-ton rhinoceroses are rushing by each other on the freeway at opposite directions at a combined speed of 120 miles per hour, that is real danger. I mean, one movement of a foot or two makes all the difference. But they have no perceived risk. There is no benefit in developing their courage. Let's talk about the activities that are offered at Deer Crossing. Because when you just look at the normal activity offering, you're like, okay, windsurfing, kayaking, rock climbing. These are standard outdoor summer camp activities. But when you're a kid who goes to Deer Crossing, you quickly realize this is not a typical summer camp. And as you know, I've worked at many different summer camps, and I've seen how most summer camp activities for kids are pretty shallow. You'll take one class, maybe two classes, and then you've hit, you've gone as deep as you can in that activity. But at Deer Crossing, my own experience with windsurfing was I went there for two weeks and I just started to get good. I went back for another two weeks and I got pretty good. I went back for two sessions in a row for four full weeks and that's when I really leveled up, but I still was not as good as I could be. There was always a way to go deeper and to get better at deer crossing. And I think this is a reflection of you and the many sports that you've pursued and the depth to which you've pursued them. So tell me why this happens at deer crossing. Why can kids go so deep? Well, first of all, one of the things deer crossing is designed to do is to bring out self-esteem. And every camp says this. But the thing is, is we have a program where we've carefully thought through 
how do you do this? And we believe that self-esteem is not that fluffy thing where you say, I'm good just because I'm good. Any kid that's got a little lawyer in their brain goes, that's not true. You're good because of competency levels. And the more competency you have, the more likely you are to have higher self-esteem because you've handled this thing, this thing, this thing, and you're really good at it. That then spreads into other areas. And so deer, deer crossing is a skill-based camp. And we don't, for instance, we don't hire counselors. Counselors are usually a glorified babysitter. And we hire only instructors that can instruct all the way from beginning level, hopefully all the way up to expert or instructor rating. And that's why we hire, whenever possible, campers that have been at our camp before that have grown up there because they're really, really good at what they do. Like I've watched Blake go from barely able to stand on a windsurf board being a hot dogging windsurfer and, you know, doing 360s, helicopters, tailspins, trick tag, playing all kinds of games that you have to be extremely high, highly skilled in, which automatically adds to your self-confidence. You go, hey, I did this, I did this, I did this, I can do other stuff. And so we've gradated our program based upon scheduling it from beginner and working our way up step by step. And because I've worked with Olympic athletes uh, many times, it's trying to figure out what's the best way to teach somebody so they get really good at what they do really fast and then have no limits to be able to be able to keep going and progress from one level to the next level to the next level and up. And so Deer Crossing's programming is predicated upon if you're going to be a rock climber with us, you're not going to be, uh, well, a Planet Granite is a great place for kids to go and have birthday Which parties. Is a rock climbing gym here in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's great, but it, if you're going to climb real rock, it's a whole different ball game. You've got to learn how to analyze the rock you're climbing on. You're totally responsible responsible for your own protection. And so we start kids by learning how to, to tie their knots, which they do at any camp. But then we go blindfolded tying their knots. You've got to be able to do it so well, you don't even have to see it anymore. We teach them how to inspect a rope, how to inspect harnesses, uh, carabiners, do full inspection on all their gear for safety. We then move them into small walls where they set up the protection like at a climbing gym, it's always set up for you. You know that it's purely safe. So we teach them how to analyze, to set it up. Uh, and then they learn all the steps on very low-key walls, kind of like a college. It starts out really easy. But then we build up to really big walls. And they're doing multi-pitch climbs, you know, walls where parents, who when they see slides of the kids during it, we have a Christmas show where everybody comes. And we see slides from camp. And some parents will see the climbing and go, Margaret, did you have any idea that she was doing that? Margaret goes, I had no idea. And, but we have to point out, as our campers do, that they're so clear on the safety protocols that they are safer doing than that than they will be driving home with their parents that evening. And so the idea is to put tremendous depth into what they're doing and learning and then build on that because uh, deer crossing, we call it the karate kid syndrome. It's based on the movie where, you know, Mr. Miyagi teaches you how to paint his fence, wax his car, and two weeks later, you're a national champion. And myself, having been in, involved with many Olympic athletes, it does not work that way. It takes lots of incremental improvement over a long time with targeting to make sure you do get really good at what you do. And so deer crossing is focused on that. Many camps just kind of put you out in a canoe and a two-acre pond and say paddle around. And the kids say, I know how to paddle. At deer crossing, they, they wouldn't paddle our basic, basic canoeing course if they thought they knew how to paddle then. When we're finished with them, they're going to know what they're doing. When I read books about deliberate practice, I realized that that was exactly what has been implemented at Deer Crossing. 
which is lessons that are tailored just for your skill level, designed to bring you up to just the next level that are repeatable and that puts you in this state of total concentration. And I think that, I'll just speak from my own experience, I had trouble finding that kind of challenge in school. And either school felt like it was going too slow or too fast or it wasn't relevant. And at Deer Crossing, I could focus on something like windsurfing and I could go as quickly and into this skill as I wanted to. And at Deer Crossing, when you come back as a returning camper, you get to come in the morning and help set up the activity board. And so you can request a higher level windsurfing class and often that request will be granted. And so I feel like what you've done really well is create a situation where mastery can be rapidly attained. And that's you know hard to get in school sometimes, and it's hard to get at other summer camps. And also, you have a lot of experience in these sports. So kayaking, for example, you're not just you know the manager of a kayaking, an aquatics program at the camp, because you've actually done whitewater kayaking in grade three and grade four. And grade five and a grade, little bit. Grade five, that, that's the really scary stuff right there. And I remember as a camper watching you with some of the kayaking instructors down at the lakefront doing rolls. And for those of you who don't know what a kayaking roll is, you are your legs are shoved into this tiny little plastic boat. You have a spray skirt on that will keep the water out when you flip upside down. And so when you flip over, you have to use this paddle and do this complicated maneuver to then right yourself back up. And some people, like Jim, think that it's fun to not just do this every once in a while when it's necessary, but to do hundreds of kayak rolls in a row just to get really good at this. And I imagine that there are very few other people who are running summer camp programs who have the depth of skill that you do in canoeing, in kayaking, windsurfing, the list goes on and on. Um, are you familiar with any other programs run by people like yourself, Jim? Just in case anyone who wants to send their kid to Deer Crossing, you know, is looking at other potential camps, other places? In general, uh, we belong to the American Camping Association and WAKE, which is the Western Association of Independent Camps. And a lot of people look at me and they say, Jim, it's pretty unusual to have a director that, you know, has so much experience in each one of the activities and so, again, for me, the response is uh, there's a big difference between knowing and doing. For me to pick a good windsurfing instructor or a good kayaking instructor or sailing instructor and then be able to analyze to make sure that they are good at what they do, um, I felt that I myself also had to have skills that were, you know, at, at a high level so that I could look at these people and not just be talking about it, but be saying, you know, I've done this. I know what's going on here so that I can make sure that I get the best, because we literally hire from all over the world. In fact, Blake's in my office now. I have four applications right here next to my computer of people that want to work for us. Uh, and so I'll be doing hours of interviews. And especially when I'm hiring, we hire international staff because we feel that we're a leadership development camp and kids need to be comfortable with people from all over the world. So our staff is also international. And if I'm Skyping somebody for an hour and a half, and asking questions, I've got to really know the nitty gritty of the activity that they're in. And so if they're like one of my sailing instructors on a laser, I ask them, I say, put a laser sailboat together in virtual reality. In other words, tell me step by step in your mind how you would go about doing this. And when they start going, well, I don't know, I have a lot of information about what I'm talking to. And I'm thinking, well, this may not work at our facility. We don't have a match. 
Uh, I have to admit, I also love learning myself. And so getting really good at each one of the activities is a pleasure for me. And oftentimes I get, you know, instructors that are much better than I am. So I've had like climbing instructors that are much better than I am and teach me things. So I upgrade my own skills as well. And so I'm, I'm not the, the final source. In fact, many of my instructors have given ideas. Blake has given a lot of ideas over the years about ways to improve our facility. And so I incorporate that. And by having a background in each one of the activities, it makes it easier for me to do. And the staff that you bring together each summer is pretty incredible. And I have taken advantage of your recruiting efforts by, first of all, becoming lifelong friends with many of these staff. And second of all, recruiting them to then help me run my own unschool adventures trips. And I know that if somebody has worked for you at Deer Crossing, that they have an incredible sense of risk management, that they're hard workers. If they can just survive eight weeks with you, then it tells me a lot about them. You're sometimes not an easy guy to work for, Jim. I think somebody has told you this before. I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah, because you are old school and you hold people to an incredibly high standard. And I think for a lot of college-age people coming in, this has just never happened to them before. Being asked to perform at a very high level, to be extremely responsible, extremely conscientious, and to do it now. And you... I feel like you respect the young people who you hire enough to ask that of them. Whereas other camps are a little bit more on the the party side of things. They look a little bit more like wet, hot American summer. I don't think I've seen wet, hot American summer. Oh, you need to see wet, hot American summer. Yeah, it's a classic. (laughs) Well, I'll just give you a simple thing. Uh, The camp is a growth experience, not only for the campers. It's a huge experience for the campers. Uh, I just got a letter back from one of my instructors from last year, Connor, a fabulous instructor. In fact, Connor started a program at camp. Uh, He's a geology major. And he said, Jim, can I teach a geology course? And as Blake knows, if it fits into our programming and our psych as far as being a wilderness camp, uh, you know, I'll go fine if you can sell it. And so I thought, geology, I don't know if you're going to be able to sell it, Connor. It sounds pretty boring. It does. But we have a certain way of teaching. And his geology classes were packed. Everybody was signing up for them every day. We have kids now that want to be geologists based upon taking Connor's classes. So again, it's an example of where I use the skills of another instructor, which I may not have a strong base in, to increase the depth of what we have. And But little things like instructors are going to learn, like Blake says, I can be pretty tight. Uh, one of the things that any, any employer will tell you, you need to be on time. When you're not on time, it shoves the whole schedule back. It throws everything off for everybody in a job setting. And so as Blake will tell you, I don't know if this ever happened to him, if you are even one second late being at what we call the war board in the morning, which Blake mentioned, we have a gigantic wall. We tailor make every day based upon the kids that we have, uh, what the instructors want to teach that day so that everybody has input into what we're going to do for the day. If you're one second late, you don't come into the room. We have to work for you. We have to set everything up for you. You go out and do something for us to make up for the fact that you weren't there on time. And so one of the really popular things to do if you're not there on time is clean the bear vault, which is... I thought you were going to say sweeping the granite, you know, getting rid of the stumbly granite. I have sweeping the granite too. That that is another one. The bear vault is pretty nasty though. Yeah. That's a big garbage bin. And so it's, it seems like such a little thing, but uh, all the instructors are praying that Jim doesn't show up on time. 
because I always tell everybody, I won't ask you to do anything that I won't do. If I'm late, uh, you can tell me what I have to do as a chore. And they've been praying for me to be late for the last 35 years. <laughs> uh, so far, they haven't been able to nail me but because uh, I'm always up. I'm always in there. Or I'm not actually doing something that has to be done for the camp. And so it's, it seems like a little thing. But, you know, I expect everybody to be a fine line and be top level leader. We're all coaches. We all have to be at the top level. And at the top level of the Deer Crossing Camp experience is the LIT program, the Leader in Training program, which is just for teenagers, ages 15, 16, 17, more or less. And it's usually a very small group of them. It can be anywhere from just a couple of them up to around eight, maybe 10 is your largest group. And uh, But this is not something that was at the very beginning of Deer Crossing. This is something that you added in. And where did this program come from? And tell us a little bit about it. What Deer Crossing is already a leadership experience, and LIT is the next level. Deer Crossing was designed so that I wouldn't complain. I see a lot of people complaining about the leaders that we have, especially right now. And you can assume what that means, but they're complaining that the leaders don't have the qualities that we think a leader has. At Deer Crossing, we have a very simple saying. We say that true leaders first learn to lead themselves. And they have to lead themselves in very specific areas. And so this has been woven into the fabric of Deer Crossing. But then to keep away from complaining, I said, I'm going to make it an overt leadership camp for the kids that are in the LIT program. We're going to teach them how we do, why we do it, and what to do to bring out the very best qualities in both themselves and other people. Uh, in the beginning, you know, I thought about working with kids that were at risk, and I've worked with kids at risk, and I've worked with kids that are extremely gifted. And I realized not too far into my career that the kids that are gifted that become a leader can have a huge, what we call, halo impact on everybody around them. Uh, when we're working with a, a single child that's at risk, it's great that we can turn them around, and I think that's wonderful for people to do it. But I thought I could have a bigger impact by creating our future world leaders. And so the LIT program was based upon taking all the cutting-edge research that we can come up with every year, we change it, and building it into kids in a 30-day residency program where they would get these leadership skills and understand what they're doing and why they're doing it and be able to employ it. And as Blake has mentioned, he's he comes up to my camp regularly. He asks me, who's good here, Jim? <laughs> who, who can I poach? <laughs> who can I poach for my business? And uh, a lot of those people have been through our LIT program. Like I know Julie, one of my instructors, uh, has been on a number of adventures with Blake. And so they have been through the LIT program. They understand the full psychology. Blake has actually helped me to teach the LIT program and been heavily involved in portions of it and everything and figuring out how pieces are done to weave them in so that we can create our future world leaders. And so we do very sophisticated things in the program. It goes from 7 in the morning I like to say until 12 at night, but some of the lits argue with me. They say it's even later than that. It's a basically a SEAL experience in leadership, practical experience, and a lot of brain work. Yeah, let me paint a picture here. So you're expected to get up when you're in the lit program and go set up that morning board with the instructors. So you're already up at about 7 a.m. And then you're doing one or two two-hour-long intensive activity period. So you're getting really good at climbing or windsurfing or kayaking. You're doing a full two hours in Loon Lake, which is this freezing cold high Sierra lake. 
Sometimes, only in the first session, it's freezing cold. It's a warm, balmy Caribbean lake in sessions two, three, and four consistently. Um, you're in a, a high altitude lake and you're doing lifeguard training with Jim Wilton's himself. And Jim is not your typical uh, Red Cross lifeguard trainer because he kind of laughs at the Red Cross lifeguarding curriculum while following it, you know, down to the. Down I to follow every single point. Yes, I've, I can. You know, serve testimony to this. Uh, but then he adds in all of this kind of crazy extra lifeguarding stuff that he learned working in Hawaii with lifeguards there where there's really powerful surf. And so you're doing stuff like you're swimming and you are dragging one of your fellow lits across the water, keeping their, their head out of the water so they can continue to breathe as, as if you are rescuing them. And you are doing this for hundreds of yards in the open water. You are doing rescues on not just these victims that uh, you see in Red Cross lifeguard videos where they're you know, acting like they're drowning. And then as soon as you touch them, then they become immediately passive and you drag them in with your red rescue tube. No, you go out and you have no red rescue tube, which is like a real life situation. And you are battling someone who is trying to drown you. These are called bread and butters. And so it's like getting an entire swim workout in while also learning these really relevant skills for people who want to work in aquatics. And so you're doing this, you have six hours of intensive outdoors stuff. Two hours of that is swimming and, you know, water wrestling. And then you get a few hours to eat. You have one precious hour of siesta in the afternoon. And then after dinner, it's evening psych classes with Jim. And you're going from about 8 p.m. until about midnight, sometimes longer if there are delays. And Jim is a, is a master teacher. He makes this highly engaging. I once spent uh, some time writing down every single trick in the Jim Wilton's teaching book. And I realized that he really just does two things, which is he tells stories and he plays games. And so that is how he keeps these teenagers awake and highly engaged from you know 8 p.m. until midnight, even though they've been totally destroyed by all these intensive outdoor activities during the day. So this is what the LIP program is really about, but there's even more to it than that. It's not just the activities and the lifeguarding and the psych, because the LITs also go on two big trips. And the first one is a really influential one. It's the Ascent Trip. And I've talked about this a lot in my books and my writing because it's become a model for how I run my international trips. Would you like me to talk about the Ascent Trip, Jim, or would you like no, to give it's an No, it's fun intro? for me to listen. I can relax Oh, my and, gosh. And well, then it. I'm going to go for it and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. On the Ascent Trip, the campers, first of all, have to interview to be on the trip. You can't just sign up and be accepted. And if you pass the interview, then you are allowed to design the trip with your fellow campers. You get to choose the destination. You pack the bags. You choose the meals. You tell the instructors when you're getting up. And there are instructors on the trip. There's two of them, but they are just your shadows. They will just follow you through the wilderness wherever you go, even if you are taking the dumbest route possible <laughs> up the side of a mountain and you are just climbing straight through Manzanita bushes, which I it's hard to remember how many times I've had to do this on ascent trips when there's a nice polished granite slab just there, a hundred feet to your right. The instructors do not say a thing. They just follow and they really make the trip the camper's experience. And they are the insurance policy, the instructors. If somebody breaks an arm, if the campers are not going to get back on time, then they're there to intervene and help. 
But otherwise, your mission is do not intervene. Let them have their own experience. I'm going to slip one thing in here. We have one of the best safety records of any summer camp in the U.S. So when you said break an arm, never even come close. True. 35 years. That's right. Keep going. So on the ascent trip, I've I've had some fun experiences like uh, having a group get up really early, throw their bags together, go peak a mountain, you know, finish their day at this high elevation lake. And as they're unpacking their bags for dinner, they realize they have the mac and cheese, they have the stove, they have the fuel, but somebody forgot to bring the cooking pot. And they are looking over at me with these hangdog expressions, and I'm already toasty in my sleeping bag, cooking my own mac and cheese on my own pot, which I've brought for myself. And they say, Blake, could you please, please let us use the cooking pot that you brought when you're done? And I have to turn to them and I have to say, no. Of course, they're not starving. They're not suffering. They have other food. They figure out ways to like soak their pasta uh, overnight and drink, you know, eat this terrible pasta mush in the morning. And so fundamentally, they're fine. The perceived risk is high. The actual risk is very low. Uh, and none of those kids will ever again forget to bring a cooking pot on an ascent trip. And so uh, every lit has to go on the ascent trip. But there's yet even a bigger one. And I don't want to talk about this one because I don't want to spoil anyone's uh, lit experience if they're going to sign up for this program with you. But can you tell us about the culminating experience uh, for teens on the lit program? What they do is a full survival at high elevation with nothing except a water bottle, water purification tablets, one match per lit, a knife, uh, a single granola bar, which is we call the temptress. (laughs) <laughs> it will tempt them the entire trip, and it's become a tradition now not to eat that granola bar and be able to resist the temptation. And basically just the clothing on their backs and a map and a compass. Uh, we have what are called surprises on the trip, and that's what Blake doesn't want to mention. The purpose of it is not to teach survival. They're going to learn over 120 things related uh, to doing a survival trip, but what they're doing is practicing some practical things like attitude control under trying circumstances. They're going to be tired. They're going to be cold. They're going to be hungry. And the idea is, can you control your attitude when it's real? And so a lot of the lits have told me afterwards when they come back and they're going to college and things are difficult, they say to themselves, man, I think this is hard. The lit quest was a lot worse. It was hard physically, emotionally, and mentally. This is not that bad. I can survive anything. And so it's kind of our cauldron where we put a lot of the things together at the very end on the last trip to see, can you put it all together and make it work? And the company Outward Bound is famous for having its participants go on solos at the end where they'll go off and they'll be by themselves for a few days and they they won't have staff near them. Uh, Maybe the staff will be a few miles away, but there'll be one other uh, young person who's close to them and they have this kind of signaling check-in system where you you put a rock in a certain position. And so you, you are checking in with your other solo buddy, even though you're physically separated. And a lot of people think that that experience is as hardcore as it gets nowadays for young people. And I just, this is why I wanted to bring you on the podcast, Jim, because I want more people in the world to know that there are still people running really cool, really intensive wilderness experiences. I put you in the same category as uh, another person who I interviewed for uh, the company Croca, where they take campers out on multi-week 
cross-country skiing expeditions and snow camping expeditions in the backcountry of Vermont in the middle of the winter. And there's just not many people doing this. And outward bound trips are great. Knowles trips are great. But nothing that I've ever heard of even comes close to this lit quest. One of the things different, uh, a lot of the survival programs they have at other camps, the person is usually, they're static. They're required to stay in one single location, not move more than a, they have like a circle that they're allowed to move in, you know, more than 100 yards from whatever it is that they've set as their base. Uh, on ours, we're mobile. So they'll stay in a place and then they're going to get up and then they're going to move. And one of the other things that makes it different is the individuals have to take full leadership responsibility. Myself, I'm there and also another instructor. And I, I call ourselves the guardian angels. We're there to make sure that everybody is safe and stays protected. We'll step in if you know a safety guideline is broken and stop whatever's going on. But they are responsible for leading the trip and they're not allowed to have any input. Because a lot of times when you're the leader, you got to make the choice. And it's really hard when everybody else believes, you know, they want to do this or that. You're the final buck. And so you've got to make the decision. And so in the lit quest, we're moving. And they're going to have to make decisions based on map and compass skills. Uh, We had a trip two years ago where one of my lits got in a situation where it was potentially dangerous. And she had to make a decision. So she said, I want to do this. Now, the other lits are not allowed to say anything. But with their physical presence, shaking of heads and all kinds of stuff, it was clear that they did not want to do what this lit wanted them to do. And so she was under tremendous pressure on a peer level to make a decision. And she stuck with what she believed. She did what she thought was right. And I'm sitting there watching this the whole time. If she had done what the other six wanted her to do, I would have stopped it. It was too dangerous. And so she made the correct decision in the situation she was in, but I didn't say anything until the whole lit quest is over. So she went up against all these other people because we believe you always go with what you believe until proven different. It's a mark of leadership. And we see a lot of people in this world now now who say, Mm -hmm. I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. I'm just going to use a political example who go not with what they believe, but what the herd is doing. And we believe that great leaders go with what they believe unless proven different. And if you're proven, great, make a change. But some people are even unwilling to do that. And so this was an example, again, by being mobile, having to make decisions based on map and compass, which requires a lot of mental calculation. Uh, It's really hard on the lids, especially when they're hungry, they're tired, and they have, quote unquote, I'm air quoting again, surprises. They have things that will come at them and no lit will share this with anybody until they actually become a lit themselves. They've actually graduated and then they'll share some of the surprises that happen. Jim, I'd like to zoom out and just get some of your thoughts about education more generally. And I'd like to start with this. What hole do you feel like you are filling in the school system when you give your leadership workshops when you run deer crossing camp programs, what is it that you feel like you are uniquely contributing that students don't have a good chance of getting otherwise? I just did a a keynote speech for the Mountain View School District. And what I did was I started out with something that really got the crowd against me in the beginning. And I'm sure I'm trying to get them to fund a program. But I, I told them that we're teaching many things in school that are going to be useless in the future. And so I said, one of them is math. Now, when I said that, I could see everybody across the nation listening to this podcast go, what are you talking about? Well, actually, I think the people listening to this podcast are probably like, yeah, of course. 
So uh, crowd bias here. Well, the problem was, is, you know, everybody in the audience went, you know, there was an intake of breath and everything. And I said, a lot of the math that we're teaching, yes, we need basic arithmetic, division, and so on. But I then asked a question. I said, for you that, you know, are looking at me like, you know, like me to leave right now, how many of you had to learn the quadratic equation? And of course, we're here in Silicon Valley. Every single hand in the audience went up of about 125 people. And then I said, how many of you have used it in the last 10 years? And three hands went up and I said, let me guess. I'm a magician to a certain extent. You are engineers. Am I correct? And they went, yes. And so I said, approximately 98% of you don't use something that we continue to teach kids. Now, we quit teaching Latin in school because we realized Latin wasn't important for their livelihoods, you know, and being able to uh, exist in the future. So I said, we need to teach future skills. And the way I, do, I say this is I say, don't teach your kid to play poker with a robot. <laughs> the robots yeah. are going to win. Okay. Yeah. And so we need to teach them skills that are future-based that they will be able to use for the rest of their lives. And we now refer to these as meta skills. And so uh, a meta skill is the ability to make good decisions. As you know, there's a lot of false news now. And so part of our LIT program, we teach the LITs how to analyze information to make a good decision. And we've tried to simplify it from a lot of the research that's been done by the Nobel laureates uh, to how do we do this and make it easy for a young person to pick it up and make it practical. And we found a system that works very well. And so kids need to know how to make a decision. Uh, many of the leadership things that we teach, like having a, a great attitude, uh, if you think about it, what's one of the marks of some of the most successful people on the planet. And when you think about it, it's the ability to deal with frustration. If you've ever read the biography of some of the most, well, just take somebody that's modern, Elon Musk. The people that know him see all of his successes and everything. But if you read his biography, you'll see, man, he has been kicked down and thrown down again and again and again. And it looked like there was no way he was going to come back. But he deals with the frustration of those situations extremely well, which is attitude training. And by doing that, well, he's made a name for himself. He's incredibly successful. If you look at Branson. Uh, of Richard Virgin, Branson. Yeah, Virgin. Virgin Branson. Virgin Airlines, uh, Virgin Records, all the other things he's done, again, thrown down again, 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 again. If you look at Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs and I went to the same high school. If you look at Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Wozniak, the inventor of the Apple computer. Again, knowing these people, they kept getting thrown down. They dealt with frustration and they bounced back. And so we need to teach attitude control to kids as part of our specific programming and not do it just so that it's an accident, but to teach it for a reason and to teach it with intention. And so you used that term just a little while ago, teaching with intention. And that is one of my goals is to take the the most cutting-edge psychology that I can possibly find, meta-skills, and then teach it in such a way that a child will be able to use it, be able to retain it, remember it, and then bring it up when they need it. You spent a lot of time working in public schools, and I'm going to throw a big question at you. You could wave your magic wand and change the way that schools operate. And this could be in terms of curriculum, what's taught. It could be in terms of how long the school day or the school year is. It could be how we hire teachers. It could be how big a school is allowed to be. What do you think would make the biggest impact for helping kids 
you know, develop these future skills, these meta skills that you find important, and I agree with you, will be important. Trying to change the school system is like trying to replant a redwood forest. <laughs> the Some things are so deeply ingrained, like, like when I said the math, you know, and people reacted that way. I said, we don't need to teach calculus and other things to many students because they'll never ever use it in their lifetime in a million years, and they would be more beneficial if we taught them statistics, you know, and taught them how to, to analyze things based on statistics and how they work. And so um, I'm fortunate in that I work in a number of extremely progressive schools, magnet schools. Uh, one of the meta skills that we should be teaching is science. All the science, well, they say this in medical school. They tell the medical students in the first year, by the time you graduate four years from now, 50% of what you've learned will no longer be true because we're going to come up with new things. And so it's just going to all change. And so it's not that you're learning the, the factoid or how to do it, but you're learning the meta skill of science, how to think like a scientist, how to analyze, how to set up experiments, make theorems, test them. And so in schools, we need to teach a ton of science because it teaches kids how to think and how to analyze things using the meta skill of science. And when you think about it, there were some things that, that turn human beings from one thing to another where we've had paradigm shifts, like one of our huge paradigm shifts, the ability to speak. Now we could communicate across distance. Another one was the ability to write. We can retain information from way back in time. It's a meta skill. Meta skill is reading. And so science, not specific sciences, but science itself is a meta skill. And I think that it should be taught in all schools as a practical hands-on thing and not teach kids, you know, in the ocean there's plankton. Science facts. Yeah. Because they're going to all change. And we all see that changing very fast right now. So I'm big into teaching kids how to think like a scientist. When I Parents ask me, they say, well, Jim, I want to send my kid to school. What's the most important thing? When they go to college. And I say, tell your kid not to take classes. And parents look at me totally shocked. You know what I mean? Just, you know, like go, you know, and party the whole time. No, no, no. Tell them not to take classes. Tell them to take teachers. Find the best teachers and teachers that put them hands-on. I know when I went to Berkeley, uh, I really got into doing independent research where I would learn how to use scientific tools. And so it made a huge difference when I wanted to get hired. Uh, as a marine biologist for many years, it, it's a, a glamour job. You talk to kids, oh, I want to be a marine biologist. You get at least 10 kids in every class that want to chase whales, dive with sharks, and so on. But the actual hiring rate, it's like a movie star. There's too many people that want the job. When I did it, I learned how to use the tools that they use to make the information. In other words, the meta skills. And so I could use an electron microscope, which was really rare back then. I uh, learned how to use all the laboratory equipment, both wet bench and dry bench laboratory equipment. I could create information. And so I had no trouble getting a job. I mean, I've worked for a number of governments. I, I got jobs at the University of Hawaii in their undersea research program where there were thousands of applicants. But the meta skill is what will give you a big boost. And so when a parent is thinking about what does my kid need to learn in school, think about things that have a long shelf life, which are all meta skills. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I sat down, and I, or at least I did, and I made a long, long list of what I believe meta skills to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think those need to be taught. And a lot of times they're not, they're out of the, the normal reading and writing and arithmetic type of thing that we normally teach in school. And on the subject of college, uh, you have one child, your son, Griffin, and 
Something that always struck me as interesting, uh, because I was present for Griffin growing up, going through high school years and getting towards the college years, was that you were very insistent that you were not going to pay for Griffin's college. Now, that's sort of that's sort of out there in terms of modern parenting. That's what we feel that all parents are obligated to do, is to fund their kids' college experience so that they have a, a platform to spring into professional success. And so tell me what was going through your head. One of the things I've seen is when parents fund their kids, the kid gets through four years of a Bachelor of Arts degree and has no idea what they're going to do, nor skills to do it with, and is not hireable. And the thing is, if you spend your own money, uh, you add value. My parents could have paid for me to go to college, but said, we will teach you how to work. And so they taught me how to work. In fact, I started my very first business when I was 14 years old, and I started a swim school in my backyard pool. It turned out to be extremely successful, and I made enough money to be able to buy houses by the time I was 16 years old. Uh, I, I was hiring other instructors to, to teach. I built a, a pool in the backyard of one of the houses I built. By the time I was 18, I wasn't teaching my backyard pool anymore. So I made the money that I needed uh, because it was necessary, and my parents weren't going to pay, and that would help pay me through college. Now, fortunately, I got scholarships, and so I didn't ever have to use that money. And uh, but I learned how to work. And a lot of people think you learn how to work in the first couple of days on a job. And it doesn't work that way. You have to work jobs a long, long time. And I'm, I'm going to say one here. I'll put you on the spot. Mm. Uh, Blake read a book called The Four Hour, the four hour Work Week. Something oh, yeah. Like that. It's, a, it's a well-known book. Well-known book, Four Hour Work Week. And when he told me about it, I, I was intrigued. I read the book. And then I thought, well, there's no way that I could do this. Because my my whole spirit and soul and everything is is plugged into what I do and where you may be able to do some jobs where you can do it in four hours. To my mind and to some other people I know, that's not possible. You have to work a lot longer, a lot harder for a longer period of time. Now, I'm not sure if Blake still agrees with that, but to my mind, the four-hour work week is not a good thing for most people. You have to work longer periods and, and make the investment uh, to be successful at what you do. And so I think I'm getting off the topic right there. What was the question? Just one more time. Oh, it was about not funding your kid's college education. And, and so, so the principle here is you want Griffin to learn how to work. I wanted him to learn how to work and I wanted him to be creative and use that concept I call again, I could if I. You know, I could do this if I, and that's basically what I was brought up on. I had to figure things out myself. And so uh, we could have easily paid for Griffin to go to college, but he, he knew very early on that we would train him to work. Uh, we would give him the meta skills that he needed to be very successful in life. And so Griffin came up with what he wanted to do and came up with a wonderful plan. And before he did his plan, though, uh, the plan, so to speak, would take care of him. And I said, you need to live a year on your own before you get into this other plan. And so I got to admit, I was really, really proud of him. At 18 years of age, he moved out of home. He moved to another state. He found himself a job got himself an apartment, set up internet, everything that he needed to do to live on his own for one year. He discovered a huge amount about living with other people. <laughs> uh, his best friend became his best enemy at that time. Found out it was different living with somebody than it is actually just being your buddy, especially when you've got to make payments and that person isn't doing it and so on. And then what he did is he entered the Navy. And because of his scores, and Griffin was taught some homeschooling things 
He did not homeschool Griffin, but I say he was homeschooled in that he went to a normal school, public school, but then when he'd come home, dad had all these weird things that we did that would bring out meta skills in him. And I'll just mention one. We would do magic trick. And then like a scientist, he had to analyze the trick and come up with three theories why he thought I was capable of doing the trick in front of him. And then he would test each one. And I didn't care if he figured it out or not. If he eventually did his three theories and tested them out, he was thinking to, like a scientist, about a skill, and then he would get the magic trick, whatever it was, and then find the solution. And so he enrolled in the Navy, and he has extremely high scores, so he's been given a lot of choice about what he wants to do in the Navy, and he's learned how to work really hard. He does much more than he's supposed to do. I've always told everybody, always do a lot more than is expected of you, and he's been picked out as being doing a lot of that from what we've heard from him. And the Navy will pay for him to go to college. Boom. Yeah. Jim, if a family wants to send their kid to Deer Crossing Camp, when is the best time of year to sign up for the camp? Well, the earlier the better. We've got some parents that sign up as early as right after camp in September. Uh, We tell parents that we'll usually have an opening, but if you have a specific time that you want, sign up as early as possible. But during the summer... Uh, there's always some kid that's not able to come for some reason. You know, they've broken an arm playing baseball down in the Bay Area or something, and they won't be able to make it. So we may have a space that opens up, but usually the earlier the better. But we usually have a space or two available at different sessions. And for families interested in that lit program, in my experience, it's usually campers who have been to camp as normal deer crossing campers for one or two years who are then able to make that informed decision about joining the lit program. Do you also take campers who have never been to Deer Crossing before, and does that typically work out for them as lits? Yes, Blake. We've had a few from the outside. And again, what we're doing is we're setting them up by going through an interview process. Later on, they're going to apply for a job. The more you practice interviewing, the better you get at it. So we thought, let's start early with our lits. And so we try to pick people that we feel are prepared for it. We have a lot of interview questions about Oh, grades is one thing. And if they're homeschooled, it could be projects that they've worked on. Uh, We look for extracurricular activities because we found that people that only get good grades, I mean, that's great, but we find the most successful people in life do lots of extracurricular stuff. So you may get a B average, but you're involved in all these other things. And those people tend to be very successful. Uh, We look at community service work and have a number of other things to sort of screen to make sure that they're ready for it. And then we tell them what they're getting into. It's really hard. If they've never been to Deer Crossing before, uh, we're off the grid. Our nearest neighbors are 17 miles away, 100 square miles of national wilderness behind us. We're a fully self-contained facility. It's very unique for how most kids have lived. So for some kids, it's a bit of a challenge just doing that. But we've had kids that have come from the outside system and they do fabulous. But we try to to get a pretty good idea through the interview process and through reference checks and so on on them. It's just like a job that they'll be able to be successful because we really want them to succeed at this. And if we don't feel they're prepared, we tell them maybe they need to wait a season, come to Deer Crossing as a regular camper or so on. And also you are an author of many books. And if you just Google Jim Wilton's books or you look around on Amazon, you can easily find them. And I'm even looking at one that seems to be in progress here. What is your next book coming out, Jim? Well, Blake's looking behind me, looking behind me here right now, and I've got my a massive drawing board in my office, and so I'm working on a graphic book which will be on the Tanaki monster. 
Uh, the story has been written up. I used to be a nationally syndicated columnist, and it went out originally in one of my articles. And then in one of my books, No More Nagging, Nickpicking, and Nudging, it was in there. But I thought if I could do it in a graphic format, it would be more understandable for kids. And I want to also add a segment at the end that explains the the literal brain change that take place involved with the Tanaki story. A lot of people say, is it a real deal? It is real. There's something going on in your brain that literally changes your brain. And so I've got a storyboard on the wall behind me in storyboard format, and I'm developing that book. And he asked me on date. Usually my books take several years, if not more, to write because I put a lot of rewrites into them. And this one's in its initial stages, and so I'm not going to hold myself to the fire. Right, 2022. Sounds good. Be looking for it. Hopefully a year. Okay. And last question, Jim. What is your big adventure that's coming up next? Your big personal weird Jim adventure? I know you always are thinking about multiple ones at the same time, but what do you think the next one will be? Well, I've got one, but I'm not sure I can pull it off this season. And so... Two of my instructors were from Australia and New Zealand. And we were talking one night, just having a good time. And, and for some reason, this idea popped into my brain of mushing sheep across the narrowest part of New Zealand like a dog sled. And so having sheep and having a special sled built with like bicycle wheels on it, like the one you'd see it in the Iditarod, and mushing sheep across New Zealand. And right now I'm trying to figure out if I can get all the pieces in place. And I'm not sure if I can do it this season. If not, I've got another adventure lined up. But uh, this one's been percolating for a while. All right. There you have it. Sheep mushing across New Zealand. You heard it here first, everyone. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for being on the podcast. You're more than welcome, Blake. And Blake, I have a question for you. Oh. What do you remember the most from Deer Crossing? I have to say it was that first ascent trip that I went on when I was 13 years old and the feeling of actually being in control and these instructors just following us, uh, it was incredibly empowering. And we, we use this power to slack off a bit. Actually, we came up with this very ambitious itinerary and along the way of our hiking trip, we found these incredible natural water slides and decided to just focus on those water slides for a full day. And we were eating this orange drink mix powder straight out of the bag for half of our meals. It was incredible. It was also very challenging. But I think the Ascent trip stands out the most as a camper. And as an instructor, I think what stands out the most was almost getting fired my very first season before camp even started because I was more interested in reading 100 Years of Solitude on the Couch while you and Dan were out, you know, you know, raking pine needles. And I thought I needed a break. And, uh, and you quickly made it clear that either I was going to be working hard or I was not going to be working at camp for much longer. Well, I've got to say one thing on that. Yeah, we came in, Dan and I came in after, I don't know, lugging trees around or something like that. Opening camp is quite challenging. And Blake was sitting in a chair reading a book. And uh, Dan, I think, did a lot of the explaining himself, made it very clear, you're either going to be working or you're gone. And one of the big things is leaders have the ability to change. And I've got to say that that day, Blake made a 180-degree turnaround on working hard. He worked really hard the whole time. I'm forever grateful. Thank you, Jim. You're welcome, Blake.